So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast Series brought to you from the Royal Botany College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Roseanne Jepson. Roseanne, you'll remember, is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a lecturer in internal medicine at the RBC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much, Roseanne, for joining me again. And as of today, you are the most frequent uh, guest. I was trying to think of the word. <laughs> a peer. There's no such word as a peer. Uh, on this podcast series. So thank you very much for that as well. Um, so, Roseanne, today is part two of our podcast on chronic kidney disease in dogs and cats. In part one um, that I published a few weeks ago, we focused more on the kind of theoretical aspects. And what I'd like to do today is to concentrate on the more clinical aspects of the approach to and the management of the patient with chronic kidney disease. Um, So I'd like to start by asking you, in what sorts of patients might you consider chronic kidney disease as a potential diagnosis? So is there anything in the signament, history, or indeed your physical exam that might kind of increase your suspicion that that might be what you're dealing with with the patient in front of you? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I think the classic um, uh, patient presenting with chronic kidney disease is going to be the older patient, um, particularly if we're thinking about um, tubular interstitial nephritis causing um, chronic kidney disease um, in, in both dogs and in cats. So we're always going to be heightened to the possibility of CKD in those older patients. Um, but certainly it can affect younger patients too, so I, so I wouldn't rule it out. Um, And then in terms of the history, actually that's going to be some really important information for us. We're looking um, for clinical signs potentially of polyuria and polydipsia. Um, As the disease progresses, those patients may have had some degree of weight loss. They may not be eating quite as well as they used to, and perhaps they'll be having some intermittent vomiting signs. Um, And potentially their activity levels may may have dropped as well. And it really will depend on the severity of, of chronic kidney disease and obviously some of those are very vague clinical signs and could be referable to another number of other diseases. Can I just um, ask you a couple of things there? Um, mm. Firstly, what's your perception of PUPD in terms of its um, prevalence in patients with CKD? I think that's the right word. Incidence, prevalence. Prevalence, I think is the right word. Anyway, um, how often do those patients present with PUPD? Well, I th- that's a good question um, and and it, it can depend on sort of the way that that, that pet's being looked after. I think um, with cats it can be very difficult, particularly cats that go outside to urinate um, that aren't using indoor litter trays. I think dogs, um, clients are very tuned into their dogs drinking um, more, maybe less so to urinating more, but the owners will perceive that they're filling the water bowl up more, just that they're seeing their dog going to drink more frequently than, than normal. Um, but again, it will depend on severe Severity. And in terms of giving you an exact figure for prevalence, I, I think that's hard to put a finger on, but I would, I would think it was certainly over sort of 50, 60% of patients where we make that diagnosis. Okay, cool. And just to remind the listeners that um, we actually did a podcast on PUPD quite a while ago now. Actually. We did. So they can go back and uh, listen to that. Um, and the other thing I was thinking when you were describing the signs was <clears throat> with the intermittent vomiting, are those patients, if they've got intermittent vomiting from CKD, are they generally quite sick animals or are they sort of relatively bright and appetent and so on, but they happen to vomit from time to time? 
Um, well, again, I think that can vary. I think in, in cats, we certainly see some cats that will have intermittent vomiting as a result of being um, moderate to severely azotemic. Um, uh, and the, the same would be true in dogs as well. I, I think it is important to say that we can pick up chronic kidney disease in otherwise asymptomatic patients. So we certainly see some geriatric cats and dogs that will come in for their routine checkup and perhaps have a geriatric screen done as a as part of that and we'll diagnose them with chronic kidney disease um, I'm smiling as you're saying that because I can't resist but to take the lid off a can of worms so let, let's just do it um, you know what I'm going to ask you don't you it's basically your perspective on the whole geriatric screening and its role or otherwise in veterinary medicine that's a big question. Whoa, yeah, Shailen, that's a, that is a real can of worms, isn't know, it? Well, do, you know, I spend a lot of time working in um, geriatric cat clinics. Um, and um, as part of the work that I've done there, we do offer routine geriatric screening to cats over the age of nine. Um, and we find that... Uh, quite a high proportion, so probably at least 15% of the cats, if not more, that we screen initially, which are considered completely healthy by their owners, yeah, will have chronic kidney disease. There'll also be a proportion that are hypothyroid as well. Um, so we are picking up conditions where we make changes to the management of those patients as a consequence of doing that screening. Um, I think ultimately it's up, it will be up to the client. Hmm. Um, I do think that we can pick up conditions where, where um, we can have a, a good influence in terms of longevity and improved quality of life for those patients as a consequence. Okay, see, one more question. I'll put the lid back on the can of worms. Um, and, and so do you think annual screening is a reasonable... I think, it, I think it's reasonable, for, for certainly for cats over the age of nine. Um, yeah, definitely. Excellent. Let's get back to what we were talking about. I'll leave you alone. Um, so <clears throat> I think the, um, the other thing is in terms of physical exam of the patient, is there any kind of markers or things that might raise alarm bells or is it a pretty nonspecific physical exam in most cases? In a lot of cases, in, in the early stages, it can be very nonspecific. You can probably find little um, other than the general ageing changes that you might otherwise expect. As kidney disease progresses, then in line with the variable appetite, then you may have some poor body condition. Um, certainly in cats and small dogs, um, you may be able to palpate that the kidneys feel smaller than normal. Perhaps they feel a bit irregular. Um, and then as the disease progresses, um, we may get evidence of halitosis oral ulceration but we're really looking at end-stage chronic kidney disease by the time we're finding mm. those abnormalities horrible um <clears throat> and so then how do you if you've got one of those patients in front of you and you think they may have chronic kidney disease how are you going to go about making the diagnosis and then what are the other parts kind of to the investigation of those patients to sort of complete the, the picture that you're dealing with. Yeah, so, so in the first instance when we're trying to assess renal function then we're going to probably want to get our serum biochemistry, um, check out our urea and creatinine and we're going to need to do that in conjunction with a urinalysis. We need to know um, if we find uh, a evidence of azotemia, so a high urea and creatinine, whether that's pre-renal um, or, or renal in origin. So we're going to be looking to see that the patient has inadequate 
at urine concentrating ability. Um, so that's the starting point. Um, and if we find that our patient's azotemic, then in terms of defining chronicity, we need to know that we have a history that's long enough to um, make us comfortable that this is something that's been going on for a period of time. Um, or we might want to think about documenting that this patient is persistently azotemic as well. Um, there are then, I guess, a large number of different investigations that we could theoretically do um, to um, sort of further our understanding of what may be going on and mm. try to stage that individual patient. But that's going to be an individual discussion with the client and, and depend on, on the patient as well. Is there one other thing that, let's say you find a, an azotemic patient and you think it may be because of chronic kidney disease, is there one other test that you feel, apart from the urinalysis we've mentioned already, is there something else that you feel they should all get X? Well, limiting meters was <laughs> one test as a medic, Shailen, is always tricky. Well, well, but, you know, you did say that, that, that the rest is a conversation no. with the admin, but I'm just thinking... Is there one thing that you think that, that we should just be checking as a matter of course? In so, so if I had to check one other thing, probably blood pressure at that point. Um, the consequences of hypertension, particularly in cats, can, can be devastating um, in terms of um, cats developing um, uh, high femur, retinal detachments, etc., and becoming blind as a consequence. So it's quick, it's easy, it's non-invasive, um, and uh, that combined with a fundic exam, um, we can hopefully rule... Uh, systemic hypertension in or out relatively easily. So that would be something that I'd definitely do in cats. In dogs, I'd absolutely advocate measuring blood pressure. It can be more challenging to interpret, yeah. I think, than in, than in cats is the honest answer. Um, and on the subject of blood pressure, so two things really. One is, as well as chronic kidney disease causing hypertension, Presumably hypertension can cause kidney injury and lead to chronic kidney disease? Yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, this takes us back to podcast one when we were talking about the um, structure of the kidney and the glomerulus. And um, we spoke very briefly about the blood supply to the kidney. And the kidney has a special form of blood supply which um, has what we call um, autoregulation, which means that um, the afferent arterial, so the blood supply into every glomerulus, is, is controlled. Um, to ensure that the pressures within the glomerulus remain very constant and this helps to maintain our glomerular filtration rate and renal function but what happens is that when blood pressure becomes very high um, the kidney loses that capacity to, capacity to autoregulate the flow of blood into the glomerulus and this means that the pressure within the glomerular capillaries becomes very high and they then become damaged so we end up seeing um, glomerular sclerosis, sclerosis and glomerular hypertension as a consequence. So yes, absolutely. If we have a patient that is hypertensive for another reason, we can see target organ damage to the kidney as a consequence. And um, is it rare that you would have a, an azotemic hypertensive patient and you'd be wondering which was the chicken, which was the egg? Or... No, I think fair? I think I think if you have evidence of kidney disease, then the vast majority of the time you're going to put the two and two together. Now, um, it's possible to have second conditions going on, but I guess we always like to try and wrap things up into one condition. Sure, awesome. And the other question I was going to ask you was, um, <clears throat> again, without sort of opening another tangent, um, in the context of measuring blood pressure in cats, have you got any tips for the listeners about? strategies to try and because we, we know and again I, I'm not going to go off on a discussion about the usefulness or otherwise or the 
sensitivity, accuracy, all those, all those words of blood pressure measurement, non-invasive blood pressure measurement. But we know that sometimes we get some quite spurious readings using, say, a Doppler device that just can't be appropriate for our patients. Now, I say that in the context of my patient population, which tends to be sicker and people sometimes throw up some very random numbers that physiologically could make no sense. Um, but it's obviously used a lot and it has a great place in what we do. And I guess the question is, how do we help listeners to make sure that when they're measuring blood pressure in cats, that they can hopefully get a reading or I think you're going to say a set of readings that could be you know, used in a reliable way? Yeah, it's, it's always challenging. There, there definitely are some, um, some things that we can do to try and help us feel that we're getting reliable readings. Um, and the first thing is acclimatisation. So um, we need to try and make sure that the cat is in a stress-free environment. I, I personally like to do my blood pressure measurements after the cat's had a period of time just to acclimatise in the consulting room, normally with the own a present um, you know the last thing we want to do is take the cat to the back to the ward area or a treatment area where there's potentially other cats dogs mm. um, so making sure that it's as relaxed as possible I'll get the owner to hold the cat um, and in terms of um, uh, actually measuring blood pressure then making sure we're using the right size of cuff so I always make sure that I've measured the circumference of the limb um, or the tail potentially can obviously be used as well. And then you're right, making sure that we take a series of readings. We'll normally discard the first reading and then take a series of five and average them afterwards. And then... You do have to put some kind of clinical interpretation on it. So if the cat is particularly stressed and it doesn't have any other um, predisposing factors that are making you think this cat's likely to be hypertensive, mm. then you're going to have to repeat that measurement on another occasion if you are worried that uh, you know, you've had a high reading. The other thing that you sh we should all be doing is, is the fundic exam. So routinely I would do a fundic exam if a cat has a blood pressure over 160 millimetres mm. of mercury. Um, it's quick, it's easy. I would always use an indirect ophthalmoscope. We get a great picture of the fundus um, and uh, looking for evidence of vessel tortuosity, bullous retinal detachments, hemorrhage, etc. All so. those pretty things that aren't very nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, can you just remind the listeners what indirect means in the context of you were saying that you would always use? Oh, yes. So, um, so we use a, um, an indirect lens, which um, is much easier, in my opinion as a medic rather than an ophthalmologist to use in a direct ophthalmoscope. Um, the lens is placed a finger length um, in front of the eye. Um, we'll often dilate the pupils to start with, so um, uh, particularly if they've not got mydriatic pupils to start with. Um, we use a little pen torch about an arm's length away um, and uh, we get a great picture. We need of a picture of you We do need a picture. It's hard to describe. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of doing the actions, but, <laughs> but it's not right helping. I'm bringing my camera along. Um, and how often do you, th again, these are kind of random questions in a way, but how often do you appreciate fundic changes in your chronic kidney disease cats? So we, we see fundic changes in between 60 to 70% of the cats that we make a diagnosis of systemic hypertension in. So that's a, a pretty high proportion. Now, these cats are not all blind, but what we're hoping to do is to start treatment before those changes become um, that much of an issue. That's higher than I knew. That's great to learn. And also um, then in how many of your chronic kidney disease cats do you find systemic hypertension? 
So um, we, we probably between 20 to 30 percent. Um, the studies out there are very variable, and it depends really on exactly what criteria you're using to decide when you start treatment. So the literature would say anywhere between 20 to 60 percent, but in our clinics um, where we use um, the ACVM consensus guidelines, probably about 20 percent. Okay, cool. And, and then 60 to 70 of that 20 percent. How the evidence changes. of funded changes, oh, yeah. Fair enough. Um, so kind of moving on then, I wanted to ask you about the IRIS staging system, which again is something that's sort of relatively recent. Um, and as well as the staging, then there are also some treatment guidelines. Um, could you please explain to the listeners, uh, well, I suppose start with what the IRIS acronym stands for, but also you know, what the staging system is, how it was derived, what the treatment guidelines have been mm. derived from, just a kind of general summary of the whole IRIS thing would be great. Yeah, so IRIS stands for the International Renal Interest Society, and um, it was set up well, many years ago now um, uh, as a group of international um, veterinary surgeons who were known to have a specialist interest in nephrology. Um, so it encompasses people from all across the world. And their main mission was to try and provide a staging system that could be used by um, everybody, general practitioners, specialists alike, um, and which would formalise how we think about um, patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, when the system was first set up, they were stages that were decided on really based on perhaps relatively limited um, publications and evidence. But what's happened is that as the Irish staging system has um, evolved and been used, um, is most of the publications that have subsequently been produced have used the Irish staging system um, so that um, it now really has greater impact in terms of allowing us to make recommendations in terms of treatment for patients as they fall into the different stages. Um, the Irish staging system... Um, should only apply, be applied after a patient has been diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. And this is something that people, I think, sometimes get confused about. It's really important that you make your diagnosis of chronic kidney disease and then you apply your staging. You don't use the staging system to make the diagnosis. And the iris staging system then allows you to take your patient where you've made your diagnosis and to look at the severity of azotemia and that their creatinine concentration and to put them into one of the staging categories, so between stage one and four. Okay, and... Um <clears throat> so we use that here, presumably? Or, yeah, abso yeah, absolutely. We use, we use that here. Um, all of the patients that we see will be staged according to IRIS, um, initially according to their azotemia, um, but then there are other um, secondary sub-staging that can be used as well. So we'll normally also stage according to magnitude of proteinuria um, based on urine protein to creatinine um, ratios, and we'll also stage them according to their blood pressure. And then I think you were mentioning the treatment guidelines too and um, so in particular iris have recommendations um, for how to control phosphorus in the chronic kidney disease patients based on um, the severity of their hyperphosphatemia too okay so do your do your tests make the diagnosis and then slot in the data that you've achieved into the system and see what kind of stage you're going to give them. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the questions is, and you, you've kind of touched on this already in explaining the sort of evolution of, of the whole IRIS system, 
Um, I guess that, you know, a, a question that we kind of have to really ask, and especially as soon as we use the system here, is I'm getting the impression that we're saying that whilst the evidence base for when that system was first developed may not have been fantastic, um, that we may have contributed to that since that time. But I guess one obvious question is, <clears throat> have we been able to demonstrate whether there is a sort of positive benefit to using this system in terms of disease progression or outcomes, or is it really just a clinical way of thinking, but it hasn't really changed patient progression? Was it ever supposed to change patient progression? I think I think it's helped us because we have a sort of standardized language now of talking to each other. So if I say to you, I've got an iris stage three proteinuric chronic kidney disease cat, you know exactly what I'm talking about just by saying that. So um, from that point of view, I think it, it, it has definitely helped. Um, it is a way of categorizing patients, though. So the iris staging system by itself doesn't change outcome. But what it has enabled us to do is to focus in on exactly what treatment strategies we should be thinking about for those different groups of patients, which I think makes it easier for us to know what we should be doing at which point. Um, and it also means that we can be perhaps more specific in terms of giving um, owners information about prognosis for their individual patient when we've managed to stage them. OK, cool. And we'll, um, <clears throat> we'll come, I think, at the end... Um... And just I'll ask you again about prognostication. But before we do that, um, again, we've, we've obviously... Um, well, the first thing I'll say is that I will put a link to the IRIS website when, when I publish the podcast. Um, but I want to move on and talk about the treatment of CKD. And again, obviously, we don't have time to go into kind of loads of detail about sort of specific types of patients as such. But on the other hand, could you try and kind of summarize what the different aspects of treatment are and also whether those vary between dogs versus cats, mm. whether it's a fairly sort of standardised approach across yeah. species? It's Overall, it's a relatively standardised approach for both cats and dogs. Um, the, the major um, change that we normally want to try and introduce is um, introduction of a, a renal diet, so a low phosphorus diet, trying to control hyperphosphatemia and renal secondary hyperparathyroidism. Um, and, and the reason that, that I say that first is because actually that's the only factor that we've shown in studies um, to significantly affect survival of cats and dogs with chronic kidney disease. So that's, if I had to make one change, that would be what I would try and encourage my cats and dogs to take. And um, in terms of the diets then between cats versus dog, do the phosphorus levels vary in those diets on a species basis or not really? You mean the renal diets yeah. or the... Um... Just in terms of, you know, like... <clears throat> do cats versus dogs have different phosphorus requirements as a normal or not really... Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, cats being carnivorous have a very um, a high phosphorus um, uh, diet normally if they were out hunting in, in the wild. Um, in terms of the renal phosphate content, then, um, certainly the renal diets are very phosphate restricted. There is variation between different renal diets, so not all are as phosphate restricted, um, but compared to a standard diet, um, they contain substantially less um, phosphorus, yeah. And when you were saying that... <clears throat> feel pretty comfortable that phosphate restriction is important in terms of survival mm -hmm. um, does it impact on quality of life at all or is it really about survival 
Well, I mean, in terms of changing the diet, then yeah. then I think, yes, we definitely get some patients that don't want to accept a renal diet and ultimately quality of life has to come out on top. I think there are some strategies to try and encourage patients to eat renal diets. So having some renal diet is probably better than having none. So um, we'd probably encourage cats and dogs if they'll only eat 50% of a renal diet, but they'll eat that if it's mixed with some of their regular diet mm. or an otherwise senior diet, then that's probably going to give them um, at least some of the long-term benefits. Um, in terms of um, does hyperphosphatemia itself per se make them feel unwell, then um, no, not necessarily. Um, certainly PTH or parathyroid hormone can be considered as a uremic toxin. So um, mm -hmm. that's what we're really trying to regulate, and, and we do that by modulating the phosphorus concentration, and that's that whole really complicated calcium phosphorus yeah. homeostasis, we're which not we're not going into. <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. Um, and so let's say I'm an owner and I say, you know what, thanks and all that, but actually I can't afford any of these renal diets. What are you going to offer me? So the second um, sort of best option that I would probably go for in that situation would be to, to see whether the cat or dog would eat one of the senior diets that's out on the market. Um, and that can be just, you know, the, the usual brand that you're already using because those senior diets do tend to be a halfway house in terms of phosphorus restriction. Um, so that would be the, the, the sort of second best thing. And then, uh, you know, I can say it, I, I can sit here and say it, but, you know, ideally they shouldn't be eating, you know, meats, fish, which are going to be very high in phosphorus. But we all know that at the end of the day, particularly as patients um, have progressive chronic kidney disease and are getting to the more severe stages, that their appetite goes down. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, quality of life always comes out on top. And it's important that our patients eat something than nothing, because ultimately, if they're not eating, what their body will do is catabolize um, their own muscle, um, which will lead to muscle wastage um, and all the consequences of that. Okay. And um, so if we move on from phosphorus restriction, um, what would be next on your list of treatment considerations for a CKD patient? Um, we then need to, to think about, obviously, blood pressure. So we need to make sure that if we diagnose hypertension that we appropriately treat that. Um, and the what, other... What's appropriate treatment? Um, so... In a cat, our first-line treatment would usually be um, calcium channel blocker, amlodipine bezylate. Um, and cats respond extremely well to amlodipine bezylate. Um, we normally see about a 50 millimeter of mercury reduction in, in systolic blood pressure introducing that. Um, Do you know um, what sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, delay in onset that effect has? Um, with amlodipine, it should be relatively rapid. So um, studies would uh, suggest that you know we have a, a good effect within 24 hours normally. In terms of monitoring, I probably wouldn't necessarily get the cat back the mm. next day to check it. But uh, you know, I'd certainly, when I re-examine them, uh, be looking for that kind of change. Otherwise, we might need to increase the dose slightly. Okay. In dogs, um, uh, we tend to use an ACE inhibitor as a, a first port of call for treating hypertension. Um, but dogs are notoriously difficult to control in terms of their hypertension, so often we will need a second agent, um, and a second agent would probably be a calcium channel blocker amlodipine. Cool. And um, then sort of talking about the ACE inhibitors, they have um, another role, right, in the management yeah, of kidney disease. And I guess that would be something that, that is well worth clarifying because maybe somebody won't be entirely clear about the fact that 
you could have a non-systemically hypertensive patient on an ACE inhibitor that has chronic kidney disease. Yep. And what would be the rationale for that? So the rationale for that would be managing proteinuria. And there's been a lot of interest in proteinuria in the, in the last few years um, because a lot of the population studies, so looking at large groups of, um, of cats, have shown that proteinuria um, can be predictive of um, survival um, and also um, having a more progressive form of chronic kidney disease. So um, there's a lot of interest in whether um, by controlling proteinuria um, we can impact again on survival um, and longevity of the cats that we diagnose with kidney disease. And the, the same would be true of dogs as well. And in fact, if we look at the difference between dogs and cats, then on the whole, most cats with chronic kidney disease actually only have a very low level of proteinuria, um, whereas we see a greater proportion of dogs that have glomerular involvement. Um, so pr proteinuria management in dogs is certainly um, prob probably more important than in cats, but you know, I think it is important for both. And, um, so, two questions then. One is so, if I have an azotemic, non proteinuric patient, does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> then, do I start an ACE inhibitor in that patient? So, it's not proteinuric at the moment. No, I wouldn't. Okay. Um, there's, in, unless you were, it was a dog that was hypertensive and you were going to use an ACE inhibitor for that region, yeah. reason, if your cat or dog is non proteinuric, then there's no evidence out there at the moment that, um, that the ACE inhibitor, um, from clinical studies um, anyway, is going to impact on survival uh, on that. Okay, cool. Patient. And um, how does an ACE inhibitor influence proteinuria? Is that something that you can describe simply? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it goes back again to those blood vessels in the glomerulus. And um, ACE inhibitors um, have their primary site of action on the efferent arteriole. Um, where they cause a dilation. Um, they actually have an effect on the afferent as well, but relatively it's greater on the efferent arteriole. And by dilating that efferent arteriole, um, we decrease glomerular capillary pressures, uh, we decrease the filtration of protein from the glomerulus, which just means that the load that's entering the tubules is reduced. Okay. I, I guess the other thing to say is also that, obviously, there's the new angiotensin yeah, receptor yeah. blockers that yeah. have recently been um, launched as well. So those have a similar, um, a similar mechanism of action to an ACE inhibitor and are equivalent, really, in terms of managing proteinuria from what we know so far. And have we, have we started to use that? Yeah, well? absolutely. So, um, What are we doing? Are we using it now as our default or are we trialling it anyway or um, so in terms of not something I get involved in but. Um, so we're using it in the same place as we would use an ACE inhibitor um, uh, there are differences in terms of formulations so the current um, angiotensin receptor blocker that's licensed for cats telmosartan comes in a liquid formulation um, which may be advantageous for some patients um, and the studies that have been done so far certainly show equivalency in terms of um, comparison to the to the ACE inhibitors that are on the market, so ubonazoprol. Um, and I think there will be studies that go on to try and look at whether there are additional benefits of using an angiotensin receptor blocker rather than an ACE inhibitor, but that data is not there at the moment. Okay, and what, what, are the, uh, what, what would the manufacturers say would be additional benefits, or would they not? Um, so, so obviously in terms of administration, I think a lot of cats um, will find the liquid formulation um, preferable to being tableted. Um, in terms of theoretical additional benefits to an angiotensin receptor blocker, it, it comes into the realm of um, 
uh, mechanisms for um, uh, blockade of the renin-angiotensin system. So obviously um, your angiotensin receptor blocker um, is going to block at the AT1 receptor directly um, and we all know that there are mechanisms other than um, angiotensin converting enzyme that can lead to the production of, of RAS. Um, so they would, they would argue to us that it's going to provide a, a more complete more form complete. of blo blockade. Okay, cool. Um, so we've said phosphorus restriction, dietary phosphorus restriction. We've said treatment for systemic hypertension. We've said ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker. Yeah. for protein urea. Yeah. Is there anything else? Well, then I think we need to start to think of have a more holistic approach to our patients. So, and that's going to depend on the clinical signs that they present with. But we should certainly be thinking about checking for urinary tract infections. Um, we might want to check for hypokalemia. So a lot of um, uh, cats and dogs, as their renal disease progresses, will become hypokalemic and may need supplementation. Um, we need to think about... Um, anti-nausea medications, potentially appetite stimulants, gastroprotectants. And again, these are going to be very individual. Mm. Um, and then uh, sort of things which are perhaps underutilized would be um, subcutaneous fluid therapy um, in the later stages. Um, and also, um, if patients are becoming anemic as a consequence of their chronic kidney disease and reduced erythropoietin production, then um, we are using darbopoietin uh, more frequently. Uh, I think a lot of people, obviously, and quite rightly, have been very worried about using erythropoietin uh, as a consequence of the production of um, anti-erythrin autoantibodies. Um, but it, we seem to see much less in terms of antibody production to darbopoietin and can make a big difference to quality of life. Could you just um, explain a bit, bit more about what, what darbopoietin is? Darbopoietin is, um, it is a, a human erythropoietin um, uh, analogue that has been modified. Um, and it was modified originally with the goal of, of requiring less frequent administration in humans. Um, so um, originally erythropoietin would be administered three times a week, whereas darbopoietin is just a once weekly injection. As a sort of benefit um, to veterinary medicine, um, this modification seems to mean that for whatever reason, um, the production of antibodies against that seems to be lower. Um, I don't think we have a specific reason for exactly why that's the case, but it's clinically that's what people are appreciating. And um, we, we, we administer it once weekly, do we? Yeah, we do. So um, we administer it once weekly um, until we're starting to see an increase in packed cell volume. Um, normally up to around the 24-25% point and we'd then want to back off because we don't want to overshoot the other way so then I'd probably go to twice administration once a fortnight yeah. um, uh, and gradually decrease the frequency. Cool and um, I think there was two things I was thinking about one, one was um, <clears throat> when you were saying about the subcutaneous fluids I think mm. that's sort of a seems to be a geographical thing to an extent as in my impression is that in the United mm. States and in Canada that is something that's almost uh, not part of the course, but it's probably done a lot more yeah. over here. And I don't know why that is, really, because I do wonder like whether some of it is, and I'm not saying they're valid considerations or not, but just that maybe some people, I don't know, perceive that as another level of intervention or they think that maybe ethically that's a bit less sound. I don't know what the what the reasons for that is. And, and also, I don't really have, I think it's hard 
uh, and it might be something that would be interesting to do in terms of sort of um, surveying of you know the first opinion practices in the UK to find out what the, the mm. true use of that therapy is yeah. because maybe it is used more than than, than I know and that, that we appreciate. Yeah. The the other thing was when you were talking about the sort of various gastroprotectants and. and uh, other kind of symptomatic therapies. I suppose this becomes a bit of a difficult situation, doesn't it? Because the patient's not particularly appetent yeah. in the first place, and then we're saying we'll have some oral medications yeah. and the success in giving those. And it's always difficult, isn't it, with um, with these diseases yeah. that could end up with multiple therapies. Um, I often wonder, you know, like we say to clients, and do this, that, and the other. And I, <clears throat> having having had pets and tried to administer. I think, um, yeah, we have to balance it. We have to balance the benefits that they're gaining from it, um, against the clinical signs as they're originally yeah. presenting. And, you know, uh, sometimes they, I think they definitely can be beneficial. Um, but in other patients, if tableting is uh, the biggest stress to that particular patient, then, then who are we to say that we should carry on? Um, you know, as we said yeah. before, quality yeah. of life must come top. And um, when you were saying about checking the urine for a UTI, are we saying that having chronic kidney disease makes you more susceptible to a UTI? Or are we saying that if you happen to have a UTI, then that could exacerbate your chronic kidney disease? We're saying both. <laughs> um, okay, so, um, so absolutely, if you've got dilute urine because you've got failing kidneys, then you're going to be at an increased risk for developing a urinary tract infection. But I guess the worst possible scenario is that that urinary tra- tract infection then climbs up um, and you develop uh, either a, an occult or, or an acute pyelonephritis, which could potentially cause further damage to your kidneys. So um, it's really important to note, though, that actually many cats in particular will not show overt signs of a urinary tract infection. So these cats will be asymptomatic, and yet when we take a urine sample, mm. um, we will find that they have a UTI. So uh, that really is just to encourage people t- to look for a UTI, even if you've not got those clinical signs. And I guess... Um, <clears throat> I would just sort of raise the flag here that um, that what you're not saying is, well, just put, put all these cases on antibiotics in case they have a UCI. And I know you're not saying that because if we're saying, well, you we should check for one, but they may not show signs of one, I imagine some people might read from that that we're saying, yeah. well, you know, they have antibiotics for the duration and we're not... We're no, definitely, all, right? de- definitely not. We need to document and, and we need to get a, a, a urine culture performed. And ideally, we should always be using antibiotics based on a culture and sensitivity panel, particularly in, you know, in, in chronic kidney disease patients where recurrent urinary tract infections could be a concern. So, yeah, no, we shouldn't be just routinely using antibiotics in these cool. patients. And we, we definitely see, I think, um, you know, chronic kidney disease patients presenting with an acute exacerbation that ends up being because of pyelonephritis so yeah. we certainly yeah. wonder about those in, in some of the cases yeah. that we see um, awesome and um, before we end I just wanted to um, ask you about the sort of prognostication really so <clears throat> I'm presented with a patient and I make the diagnosis of CKD and I go through the process of iris staging that patient um, can I offer the carer of that patient any sort of guidance in terms of prognosis for their patient at that time of initial presentation and then going forward as well? You know, what, what can we say about prognostication? 
Yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, um, iris stage will link to survival, so the more advanced you are in terms of iris stage, unfortunately, the more limited um, the survival of that individual patient is going to be. Um, but it is very individual, um, and we certainly see a large number of cats that live for many, many years with stable chronic kidney disease. Um, and, you know, if I could find that one factor that told me um, how to predict when that patient was going to deteriorate, then I could make myself a lot of money. But um, yeah. um, the, the bottom line is that, that that we don't, we can't say for certain. Um, monitoring can give us some information. Um, there's obviously some evidence out there at the moment that um, the more proteinuric patients are more likely to have um, a shorter survival time, but it, we have to realise that those are population studies. So just because I see an individual patient, let's say with, for argument's sake with a UPC of 0.4, I can't definitively tell you that that patient is not going to survive as long as a patient with a UPC of 0.2. On a population basis, when we look at hundreds of, of cats, mm. for example, that would be the case mm. um, so it's we need to put all of the information together basically um, but kidney disease doesn't have to be um, a, a sort of a terminal bad thing uh, I think a lot of clients get very worried when you say your, your pet has chronic kidney disease and rightly so in some situations but certainly many patients can live for a long time with stable CKD. Excellent and um, <clears throat> I always think the sort of cause of death question is a bit obviously we, we know that we, we typically euthanize yeah. patients but I guess if if we were going to highlight one thing that triggered the largest number of euthanasias is that sort of quality of life reaches an unacceptable stage uh, yeah. the definition of unacceptable obviously is going to vary but um, yeah I, th I think that's true I think that ultimately um a lot of owners will reach the point where their cat or dog is having more bad days and they're having good days. Um, their appetite has gone down. They are not interested in going out on their walks. If they're dogs, their body condition has dropped. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I do think that we end up having to euthanize probably a large number of these pets because their quality of life has reached that time. But at, at a sort of, as you said, as a time frame that's difficult to predict. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the, pro, the sort of time frame for an Irish stage 4 CKD patient is, is relatively short. Um, we'll be looking at weeks to months in that scenario. Awesome. All right, look, thank you so much. Um, I think between the two podcasts, we've, we've talked a lot about chronic kidney disease, which is fantastic. Um, Actually, it was, it was something that one of the listeners had, had emailed me about and asked if we could do a podcast on it. Um, and it's a very common problem, so I was very happy to oblige, and thankfully so were you, so that's fantastic. Um, what I can promise now is to leave you in peace for a while. What I can't promise is to leave you in peace forever, so I'll be back and to ask you to do something else soon. Um, to the listeners, as always, do feel free to get in touch and um, provide your feedback in the usual ways and also let me know if there are any clinical topics that you would really like um, a podcast on and you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page uh, where there is an album that contains information about and links to the podcast and you can tweet at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag SAClinPod 
And again, if you're enjoying this podcast series and you have access to iTunes, um, it would be great if you could take a minute to rate the podcast and maybe write a review comment as well. So until next time, then do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.